Kids, if you're making your way out to your class, you can go ahead and stand and head out with your teachers. So it's good to be back with you all. Uh, Cynthia and I have been traveling for the last couple of weeks, so it's so good to be back and seeing everyone again. We had a wonderful trip, and thank you uh, to Joe and Julio and Dave and the different folks who held down the fort while we were gone. But we had a great trip and glad to be back. And uh, this morning, I want to turn your attention to Revelation 21. So if you have your Bible and want to turn and follow along, we're going to be in Revelation 21, looking primarily at verse 5. And as you're getting there... Uh, I want to tell you about, to date, my second proudest parental moment. So we have four kids. They're seven, five, three, one. And so my proudest moment as a parent and as a father, uh, our two-year-old um, came upon a pool table, and someone asked him if he wanted to play, and he said yes. And so he grabbed the cue ball, set it on the ground, took the stick, and turned into a golf club and started hitting it because, uh, I mean, that's what he thought it was. And so that was my proudest moment as a father. I said, yes, that is my man. Any white ball is turned into a golf ball. And um, so that's number one. But number two happened around our family bike rides. So we, uh, a couple months ago, we had, uh, <laughs> you put us in the category of uh, seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, that we we're going to start taking these family bike rides. And uh, we, we should have thought about the fact that only one of our four children even sort of kind of knows how to ride a bike, so that might lead to some difficulties. And then we got one of those carriers that you hook up to your bike and kind of smashed our two boys in there. And of course, what could go wrong? Two boys stuck in a confined space where all they have to do is touch one another. And uh, somehow every bike ride in the beginning uh, would devolve into a uh, crying, uh, frustrating festival of fussing where uh, we'd get about a mile and a half from the house. And, some and so generally, like if something breaks and I try and fix it, not only does it get better, it gets worse. And so the kids have even just learned, like, let's just save everybody the grief and just ask for help as soon as possible. And uh, one of the beautiful things about having kids enmeshed in the life of a church is they know so many um, wonderful adults with wonderful skills and so many people around them to help them. Uh, like a couple months ago, we got a, <laughs> we got a new baby gate, and uh, the two words that terrify me are assembly required. <laughs> but I was going to put up this baby gate. And so we start trying to put, or I start trying to put it together and the girls can see this is starting to unravel and uh, everybody's about to get really frustrated and it's just not working. But it's the exact same baby gates that we have in all of our nursery classrooms. And so our oldest just shook her head and said, Dad, just call Mr. Zach. He knows how to do it. <laughs> Now, Mr. Zach is right over there. Zach's one of our faithful volunteers who silently, you know, puts everything up and takes it down every single week. So they said, he knows how to do it. Don't, don't tell him. I said, no, I'm not calling Mr. Zach. <laughs> I can get this gate up. And it's up. I'll have you know. So if you come over, you can see the baby gate. Please remark. Uh, just don't push on it too hard. And uh, so we were going to go on the family bike, and I was going to fix, the, we, but we had to fix her bike. So we were going to get her bike fixed. So I got our oldest and started doing different things and laid out all of our tools and started working on the bike to tighten everything up and get the chain back on and all this kind of stuff. And after a, um, 
an unusually long time. We got it put back together, and then it started, it, it worked. I mean, to everyone's amazement, it actually worked, and you could ride on it. And so our Maddie runs and gets the whole family, and we can go on our bike ride. The bike works, and she started uh, running in the little alley behind our townhome, jumping up and down, going, hooray, hooray, daddy mended it. Daddy mended it. And of course, I'm sitting there like, yeah. You hear that, neighbors? <laughs> Lower your windows. You hear that? Daddy mended it. And of course, Cynthia's kind of explosive in her joy. And she's like, oh, that's wonderful. Maddie, that's such a good use of vocabulary. That's a wonderful word. I'm like, vocabulary? Vocabulary word didn't fix the bike. <laughs> it was hooray. Daddy mended it. Daddy mended it. And what we do on Easter is we join with all of the Christians all across this planet and lift up one united song where we celebrate hooray. Daddy has mended it. So Easter is the story about how God the Father through the sacrifice and resurrection of God the Son through the power of God the Spirit is and has and will mend and renew and restore all things. And we sing hooray. Daddy has mended it. So what I want to do this morning is really just lead you in a time of just kind of meditation. And I want to take you to a verse in Revelation 21, chapter 5, and just reorient you to a verse that we actually began the year on. So if you're here on New Year's, we talked about this verse, Revelation 25. And the more I begin, to, or the more I pray about and think about what should be the central scriptural kind of call that we have as a church, as we are a new church trying to fashion and form our place here in this community, this verse is just gripped me and I think needs to be the, the launching pad for who we are and what we do. Because in the book of Revelation, especially here in 21, Jesus is issuing us an invitation to join him as he is making all things new. So I want to come back to that verse and reiterate those things. And so this will be a refresher for some of you or new for some of you. But we're going to look at this verse and I want to read it. And just very simply, we're going to think about, all right, what does he end? And then how does he mend? What does Jesus end? And then what does Jesus or how does he mend all things? But let's pick up verse 1 in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And so we're going to go back to where we began the year on and think about these things. And first just what ends and then what 
does he mend? And then you can pull up the first slide there, um, Griffin, because the first one uh, gives seven things that Jesus is going to end. He's going to bring all of these things to an end. And it's really interesting to think about um, how much health you can experience. Sometimes the best thing you can do for your life is not necessarily add something, but it's take something away. So sometimes for health, the, the healthiest, healthiest thing you can do, maybe not to, to add an excessive amount of kale, but it could just be to take out the excessive amount of sugar. And uh, on the trip, I was listening to an interesting podcast by Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist who works at the Wharton Business School. And they were running, so just, just see if this rings true to your experience. But they were running um, different tests in a corporate office environment, and they found that office morale and productivity, uh, you'll have a greater increase in morale and productivity not when you add one, like, superstar to the office, but the greatest bang for your buck is when you remove one toxic person from the office. You actually will generate more productivity and higher morale by removing one person than you will by adding one great person. Isn't that interesting? So in one sense, you can be a superstar at work just by not being a soul-sucking, emotional vampire and being toxic. That might not take a lot. Um, but you can just remove certain things can improve your life. And what you see is these seven things, and that's intentional, this, this structure of seven things that he's going to take away because these are the things that wound us and break us. And so let's look at the first one in verse 1. Look, there will be no more sea. Isn't that interesting? No more sea. Now, I'm assuming there's some Floridians in the room, and if you're a Floridian, chances are good you love it here because you like being around water. Want to be around the beach, on the lake, uh, not many rivers here, but around water. You might think, no more sea? How is that good news? I mean, my, my idea of rest and relaxation is going to the sea and sitting on the shore. Well, it's, it's symbolic. It's a picture. And so it helps to have the, the image of the biblical cosmology, how they viewed the world. There was a three-tier world, and you have heaven, earth, and the this waters under the earth the sea. And the images, so biblically heaven is not like a location that you get to by going to Saturn and then hanging a left for a hundred light years and then turning right at Alpha Centauri and then it's there. Heaven is the spiritual realm where God and, and spiritual beings dwell. Earth is the physical realm where we dwell. And then the sea is the realm like under the earth, the waters. And it's the, the realm of chaos. It's an image of the sea being the place of instability, being the place of chaos, to be the place where nothing is firm, like you try and plant your foot down and, and you, can't, you can't stand. It's where nothing is fixed. It's an image of chaos. So the image here is that that which causes instability, that which causes chaos will be removed, taken away. And the next thing is no more separation See that in verse 3 where he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be their God. These things that cause separation. See, the whole biblical narrative is that we were made to dwell with and in the presence of the Lord, and it's sin that brings separation. The great sting of sin is that it causes separation. 
And so sin, and that's what, that's what death is. Death is uh, the separation of things that should be united. So spiritual death is the separation between us and God because we are made to be united, one with him. But when sin comes in, it creates separation. Emotional uh, death is when we get broken internally. We have things that should be united become separate. Physical death is the separation from soul and body. Relational brokenness and death is when people who should be united become separate. And so separation is the sting of sin. And here he says, it's going to end. What causes the sting, the separation will be over. The dwelling place of God will be with man. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. The, The fullness of the promise of the covenant all throughout scripture will come to completion. And then notice he then starts a cycle of five things where there's going to be no more, no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Look at the next one, no more tears. You know, it's interesting to think about. There's just certain things in life that one day they'll stop. There won't be any more. One of my favorite songs is an Andrew Peterson song called After the Last Tear. And it's a wonderful thing to think about. There will be a last tear. You know, the the way the song goes, after the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves, after the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just on all the CAT scans and police scanners, one day the lights will go out at the hospital and they won't need to be turned back on. You know, one day we will not need doctors, we won't need lawyers, we won't need undertakers, we won't need soldiers, we won't need policemen, we won't need preachers. There will be a last of all of those things, but there will there'll be a last tear, but there won't be a last laugh. And then look at the next thing as he goes. He's moving sequentially, and it's set in a chiastic structure, so it kind of builds this verbal mountain. So the first three build up, and the fourth one is the the top, the pinnacle, and the other three flow out of that. And the fourth, the middle one, is there will be no more death. This is the central thing. This is the central thing that Christ came to knock out and destroy. There will be no death. And one of the challenges for us is we live in a world that is desperately trying to hide the reality of death from us because we're so uncomfortable and it makes us so squeamish. But until you face its reality, then the victory of Jesus over it will not be sweet to you. And so here it's worth just pausing to let death as a reality sink in. You know, here's a sobering thought. Every person in this room is going to die. You're going to die. One day the sun will rise and you will not. You know, one day the birds will greet the dawn and you will not be there to hear them. And your friends and family are going to gather to celebrate your life. And uh, you'll be buried and then they'll probably go back to a church somewhere and they'll eat ham and potato casserole. And your brother-in-law will be complaining because he's missing some random Florida game. And all of your nieces and nephews are going to be checking their phone uh, the whole time. And you know, soon your job and your favorite chair and your spot on the YMCA soccer league is going to be filled uh, by somebody else. And if you're really famous, 
the world will stop for a moment of silence. And then it'll go on like it always has and carry on. But wisdom, wisdom, the gift, every single week we have a gift in confession and communion to pause and remind ourselves of that reality because wisdom is learning how to number your days. You know, this year, uh, 2009, 10 years ago, uh, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor out of Texas, he was 35 years old. He was living large, kind of his church uh, had gone from 160 people to now 6,000. He was kind of this rising evangelical um, kind of star, and the wind was at his back, and it just seemed like life was just going really well. And then a Thanksgiving dinner with family, um, he passes out and has a seizure uh, in front of the kids, starts convulsing in front of their fireplace and his young family. Ambulance rushes him to the hospital, then the doctors run tests, and they found a tumor on his frontal lobe of his brain. And uh, he began to grapple with all of the natural questions you would ask as a 35-year-old who want young children, lived a charmed life, thinking, why? Why me? Why now? Who's going to take care of my wife? Who's going to take care of his children? And the neurosurgeon who was going to do the surgery uh, for him was a Christian. And in some ways, this is wonderful uh, bedside manner. But the doctor looked at him and told him and said, you know, nothing has really changed for you. You just get to be aware of the fact that you're mortal. He said, everybody is, but most people either aren't aware of it or refuse to admit it. He said, the gift that God is giving you right now is you are now aware of your mortality. And that really is a gift. It is a gift to number your days, and we get the gift of confession and communion every week to remind us, all right, there is a problem that we enter, but we also have the gift of resurrection morning that reminds us of the solution that overcomes the sting of death. That it is a reality, but it is a defeated reality. And I think one of the challenges we have in church is we often sentimentalize these things so we don't necessarily look at death as the last enemy. Paul says this is an enemy. And you can look at the list of all seven of those things. Those are not just annoyances that you have to deal with. Those are enemies that need to be defeated. And death is an enemy. And I don't think our world really knows how to face the enemy. Either we pretend like it's not there or just try and act like it's a normal part of the, the circle of life. And if it, if, just think about how crowded we would be if no one died and we try to pretend like it either doesn't exist or isn't a big deal. But every time the rea reality of it hits you, you know this is a terrible thing. This is not how it was meant to be. This is an enemy that we need someone, a hero, who can conquer. But Easter reminds us that not only is it an enemy, it's a defeated enemy. It's an enemy that has been conquered. You know, sin and death are the one-two punch that Jesus came to knock out. He knocked out sin on the cross, and he knocked out death on the empty tomb. But until you actually see and feel those as problems, then the, resur the, the resurrection and the cross won't be sweet or powerful to you. It won't change your life until you realize what he overcome, overcame. You know, there's 
uh, a pastor I like to read from <clears throat> small, kind of small town. He's a young pastor, just kind of fumbling through this thing, trying to figure it out. He wrote a story a couple years ago about the first time he had to do a funeral for a child. You know, it's one of those things like, I, I mean, how do you do this? What do you, what do you say? And uh, <clears throat> he said that, you know, he tried his best to say things that were true. And, you know, the funeral said, you know, we can rejoice for the child's better off than we are. He really isn't dead. He's more alive now than he's ever been. He's safe in the arms of Jesus. And he said, so, you know, all these things were precious truths, but they, they just didn't seem to help. It's like, I don't know what to say. And uh, he said, actually, the most helpful thing were the words of the father. I mean, could you imagine the grieving father uh, to have the emotional, moral, and spiritual courage to stand and speak? But he said the father spoke at their funeral and he said he stood up with a quivering voice and he declared that no parents should ever have to bury their child. And he pointed out that every death is ultimately the result of sin. And he said when he held his dead son in the hospital, he thought he saw the very face of sin and its mask had been ripped away. And he saw it for what it really is, this terrible enemy who wants to steal everything precious from him. He said the father didn't try and make us believe that all was okay, but from the depths of his despair, he raised a fist of defiance and said, people tell me that someday I'll make peace with Jack's death, but I'll never be at peace with death. Scripture tells me one day I will be at peace, but it'll only be when death is no more. So this is what we stand, and this is what we sing, and this is what we celebrate. We celebrate, hooray, Daddy has mended it. He is mending it. He is ending it. And notice what he says, behold, it is done. It is finished. But we will stand before him one day, and he'll wipe every tear from the eyes, and he will end Death, And that's the ultimate triumph and the ultimate victory. And then notice how the other things follow kind of in this, this cycle, this cascading uh, symbiotic cycle of there's no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. You know how, you know, they all fuel each other. Pain leads to crying, which leads to death, which leads to mourning, which leads to more crying and more pain. And that cycle, that's this vicious cycle. And he says that has been broken. And all of these things are no more. And so secondly, how does he mend them? How does daddy mend them? He mends them through the broken body of the gift of his son. He mends them through what makes the Friday good. Good Friday is only good because of the substitutionary sacrificial nature of the son. Notice those words in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. And you know, that's not the first time that Christ will declare those words. It is finished. He said it on Friday on the cross, and he says it now when he restores and renews all things. All these things, they are done. And they are done because of the power of the cross unleashed. You know, I think that God has written substitutionary sacrificial love into the very fabric of the universe. You know, there is no power as great as substitutionary sacrificial love. And think about it. Just even in the, um, in the way it's written into the fabric of life, like everything you eat, ace of the Lord shining on its people in such a way where you don't even need a sun because it's so bright and it's so radiant. But all of those things we get to experience because on the cross Jesus lost them all. 
We can experience the tree of life because on the cross he experienced the tree of death. You know, we can experience the, the river of life. We can drink deep of the waters of life because on the cross he drank from the cup of God's wrath. He became a curse so that we can enter into the blessing. He lost the smile of the Lord so that we can enter into it. Darkness covered him so we can enter into the light. He experienced on the cross the ultimate shame so that in him and through him we can experience God's ultimate reign. We can reign with him. So how do we know that one day the risen Christ can wipe away every tear from our eyes? It's because God didn't wipe away the tears from his eyes in the garden. It's because he became a man of sorrow so we can become men and women of joy. He drank the cup of wrath so we can drink the cup of life. His body was broken so ours are put back together again. And now he stands ruling, reigning, and triumphant and saying, death is going to be over. It's going to end. Death will end, but life will not. Mourning one day will end, but rejoicing will not. Crying will end, but laughing will not. Pain will end, but pleasure will not. One of the most powerful and profound realities that Easter declares and promises to us is that there will be a last tear, but there will never be a last laugh. Think about that for a second. There will be a day when you cry no more. When you terrify no more, when you fear no more, but there will not be a day where you smile no more, where you laugh no more. There will be a last tear, but there will not be a last laugh because the one who sits on his throne says, behold, I am making all things new. And one of the beautiful, powerful things that we see in Revelation is that Revelation is an invitation to us to join Jesus as he's making all things new. So over the next several months, we're going to be looking at snapshots in Revelation and seeing the victory of Jesus and the vision of Trinity, our church, and thinking about how is Jesus issuing the invitation to us to join him as he's making all things new. What kind of things does he make new? He starts by making you new, new people. We become new people. And then he makes a new community new, and then he makes his creation New, And he issues a call to join us. He makes us new by reworking in the power of the Spirit. He uh, conforms us into the image of Christ. And he makes his community new by turning us into the purified, beautiful bride of Christ. And then he's making the creation new by breaking the powers of darkness so that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ. The way I want to end and just kind of leave you with that image resonating of the reality that what Easter promises us is that there will be a last tear, but there will not be a last laugh. I showed this picture a couple times, so some of you have seen this, but I would bring up, this is kind of an iconic family picture at our house, so you can look over, like in our bookshelf in our living room, you'll see this picture, and uh, of course that's Cynthia, and that's our first daughter, Maddie, and the picture doesn't quite do the justice, because you need to hear the belly laugh squeals from both of them, so just the, the squealing, and this picture is more than just 
one of my favorite picture of my lovely girls, but it's, it's, an, it's an icon. And what a spiritual icon is, is like a physical image that points you to spiritual realities. And this picture points me to the spiritual reality that that is what she was made for. That laughing, that squealing, that's what she's made for. And that's what you were made for. You were made for belly laughter, not belly aching. You were made to laugh like that. And sin wants to steal that joy from you. And it's a helpful reminder because often that's not the sound you hear in our living room. <laughs> There's other sounds. But those sounds aren't ultimate. They're not final. That's what she's made for, and that's what she'll enter into when she enters into the presence of the resurrected and reigning Lord, and he wipes away every tear from her eye, and her tears end, but her laughter does not. And see, I know that from that day to this day, when she stands before him, I know that those eyes are going to cry many tears, and I know I can't stop them. I know those eyes are going to cry tears from dreams dashed, Tears from hopes deferred. Tears because mean girls mock. Tears because knucklehead boys wound. And tears when mommy and daddy die. But I know those tears are not final. That is final. That is what she's made for. And that's the promise of Easter that you can enter into the final and full joy of your Savior. And the promise of Easter is that one day we will join with all of God's people. There will be around his throne a multitude that no one can count from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And we will all sing with uplifted voice, hooray, daddy has mended it. He has mended and made all things new. Hallelujah. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. And I pray for anyone who's come into here, this room this morning, and they know full well the force and the reality of all of those seven things that you've promised to break and you've promised to end. So I pray for anyone who's experienced life where it just seems chaotic. They don't feel like they have any stability. Pray that you would provide that for them. Pray for anyone who feels like they, um, they're just tired of crying tears. Pray that you would wipe them away and give them the hope that one day there'll be no more. Pray for anyone who's been plagued by death and they've tasted and touched its, its reality. We praise you for the victory and the triumph of your son over it. So I ask that you would fuse into their heart the strong hope that Christ is risen, Christ is reigning, Christ is renewing all things. And we ask that you would help us, help us to be the kind of people who live in the light of your victory. We ask that you help us to be the kind of people who joyfully join you as you are renewing and making all things new. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Each week at Trinity, we come to the Lord's table because the Lord's table is our physical, tangible um, demonstration of his victory and renewal of all things. And as we come, I want to read the, the prayer, the colic of the prayer in the Anglican prayer book for Easter morning. 
with his almighty God, who through your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened up the gate to everlasting life. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may by the power of your life-giving Holy Spirit be delivered from sin, be raised to new life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who ever lives and reigns now.